Scripture this evening is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're reading verses 1 through 7. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." It's really easy for the New Testament church to lose their focus. It's really easy for local congregations to become so self-focused and self-centered that we become spiritually myopic. That is to say, we're nearsighted. We can only see what's up close. We're not paying attention to the big picture of God's will and God's plan in the world. It's really easy for that to happen in the local church. And the way we proclaim God's message and the way we pray when we're together those two things say an awful lot about where our minds and our hearts really are maybe you've heard there's an election coming up in our country maybe you're aware of that if you're like me you're probably ready for it to be over with however it ends up turning out whoever ends up taking office But I want us to spend a few moments tonight thinking about God's word and God's will in regard to how we are to conduct ourselves as the people of God in times like these. If you don't already have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 2, please go ahead and do so. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 7. And when you read the New Testament book of 1 Timothy you'll find that it's a book that deals with church life. It deals with roles and relationships within the New Testament church. There are six chapters in 1 Timothy, and the key verse is 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, I'm writing these things so that if I'm delayed, that you may know, Timothy, how you ought to conduct yourself in the church, which is the household of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Why is Paul writing 1 Timothy? He's writing 1 Timothy to instruct, to exhort, to help the New Testament church to understand our obligation before God and before humanity. And so, as you look at those six chapters of 1 Timothy, the first chapter deals with sound, healthy teaching. What is the church to be all about? We are to be proclaimers of that which is healthy for people to hear the word of God, the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes that we are to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Sound doctrine being mentioned in verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And the idea that we are to fight the good fight of faith, to wage the good warfare. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. These ideas are what the church is to be all about. Sound doctrine. 
But not just that, we are to have acceptable worship to God as you look at chapter 2. Acceptable worship to God, sound doctrine, what is the church to be all about, healthy teaching, acceptable worship, chapter 2, more about that in just a few moments. Chapter 3, qualified leadership. It's in 1 Timothy 3 that you read the qualifications of men who would serve as elders and men who would serve as deacons. So what's the church to be all about? Sound doctrine, chapter 1, acceptable worship, chapter 2, qualified leadership. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, effective ministry. Effective ministry. Paul writes to Timothy, a gospel preacher, and 1 Timothy 4 is maybe the best passage anywhere in the Bible that explains the work of a gospel preacher. What does effective ministry look like in the local church? What is a gospel preacher, a teacher of God's word to be all about? 1 Timothy 4 deals with that subject. In 1 Timothy 5, honor to whom honor is due. God's people, all of us, are to be concerned about honoring those to whom honor is due. Honor widows who are indeed widows, it says in the passage. A elder who is serving well is worthy of double honor. The idea of respect and kindness and high esteem for one another as brethren in Christ is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And then chapter 6, purity. Purity, especially when it comes to how we handle money and things. Godliness with contentment is great gain, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. We are to refuse to love money and things because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. And so as you look at this book, it's talking about, it's giving us a picture of God's plan, God's design, God's will for how we function together as the people of God. Now we're going to zoom in with that in mind on 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 7. And I want you to notice how the passage reads. There are four declarative statements that we can make based on the seven verses in 1 Timothy 2. Read verses 1 and 2 with me briefly. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Here's the statement. We are to pray for all. It's right there in the passage. As God's people, we are to pray for everyone. Secondly, look at verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Declarative statement number two, God wants all to be saved. So as you look at this section of Scripture, you look at this passage, what's it saying to the church? Church, you ought to be praying for all. Secondly, God wants all to be saved. Third, look at verses 3. Uh, 5 and 6 of this passage. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus died for all. We're to pray for all because God wants all to be saved and Jesus died for all. Jesus, our mediator, 
the one who is an acceptable go-between between God and humanity by virtue of his incarnation and death on the cross. Jesus died for all. And the church is to keep this in mind. Number four, as you look at verse seven, the apostle Paul writes, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Statement number four, the gospel is for all. Now think about that. As you look at the passage, it's right there in the text. We're to pray for all because God wants all to be saved. Jesus died for all and the gospel that he has provided is for all. And if those things are true, then the New Testament church is to give focus and emphasis, especially when we're worshiping together, especially when we're proclaiming the gospel, especially when we're praying together. We are to give emphasis to global concerns. Not just what's happening in our country, not just what's happening in our city, not just what's happening in our community. As concerned as we are rightfully about those things, the gospel's for all and God wants all to be saved. And with those thoughts in mind, what I'd like for us to do as a congregation here at Katy and you as an individual in your heart to answer four questions tonight based on the text that we're looking at. And question number one is this, are we regularly praying for all? It's a good question because it's a Bible-centered question. You in your life, us as a congregation, are we regularly praying for all? Notice what the passage says very carefully in verses 1 and 2. I urge then, Paul says, that, and he talks about four kinds of prayer, supplications, Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. All four of those terms describe how we are to pray. As the people of God, we are to pray with supplications. That's asking God to supply what's needed. Prayers, lifting people up before God. Intercessions, going to God on behalf of someone else. Thanksgivings. When was the last time you heard somebody who really doesn't like a certain leader, a certain ruler, give thanks in prayer for that leader, that ruler? All four of those are to characterize the way, the manner in which we pray. But then secondly, as you look at this and think about the question, for whom are we to pray? What does the passage tell us as the church? For whom are we to pray? First of all, it says we are to pray for all people. You see that in verse 1? We're to pray for all people. Let's put it in the context of where we're living right now and what we're living with. There are currently a lot of political groups, and some of them you may agree with and some of them you may not agree with, and what the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is saying by inspiration is this. I ought to pray for people who think like me and would vote like me. And I also ought to be praying for people who do not think like me and will not vote like me. I am to be giving prayers for all. And we ought to think about some of our statements and the way that we're describing other people and other groups of people in terms of this passage have you been praying for those people? 
Because ultimately what God wants, as you look at this passage, what God wants is for all men to be saved. That's His desire. Is that my focus? Is that your focus when you pray? Pray for all. But who else are we to pray for? Look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions. Some translations say all who are in authority. And I would like for you to note that there are no qualifiers on that. Only the good kings, only the presidents, and only the governors, and only the mayors that do what you think is right. Those are the only ones you should pray for. Only the ones that you agree with and that you think are going to advance your cause. No, the Bible says that as the church, as the people of God, we are to pray for all who are in high positions. Everybody. You know, if we were really praying for the people that we dislike, if we were really praying for the people that we don't agree with, I suspect that would make a tremendous difference in what we say about those people and how we say it. You don't need me to tell you that the way people talk to each other in this country is shameful and it is rude and it is as divisive as it can be. If we were really praying to God on behalf of leaders and rulers and those in authority... And if we were really petitioning God and thanking, thanking God for those individuals, maybe the way we say what we say would be said much differently. Global concerns. And by the way, when, I say, when it says global concerns, it's not just talking about this country. Think about this. Every local congregation has a responsibility locally. We have an obligation to be a light to the community around us here in Katy, but we have a responsibility nationally as well. We ought to be good citizens. We ought to live as the government would have us to live to the best of our ability unless it somehow conflicts with God's word. And we have an obligation to the world. We have to have a global vision and pray for leaders and rulers, not just in our country that affect our lives, but rulers in other countries that affect the lives of our brethren around the world. Are you praying that way? Do we pray that way as a congregation? It's every bit as biblical and sound and healthy for a church to do this as it is for us to emphasize baptism for the remission of sins. Both are biblical topics and need to be emphasized by the people of God. How do we pray? For whom do we pray? What should we pray? That's addressed in this passage, if you'll look very carefully. Pray for all, and pray especially for kings and all who are in authority, so that, here's the request, so that we may have a lower tax bracket next year. Is that what it says? So that the guy who's in office will make sure that my particular industry or my particular job and career are safe and are not being subjected to government mandates. That's what we're to pray for. Is that what it says? How are we to pray as the church, as the people of God, when we pray for kings and all who are in authority? It says that we may live a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What does that mean? It means that We are concerned as the people of God about the gospel. 
We're concerned about opportunities for people to come to know Jesus Christ. That's where our focus is. That's our number one priority as the people of God. And that's what we're going to pray about. God, whoever is elected into office, whoever sits in the chair and the authority, whoever those people are, God, we're praying for a peaceable and quiet life so that godliness and dignity and living the Christian life, that can be a part of more and more people's lives. That's the way we're to pray. We're focused on the gospel and more people coming to know Jesus Christ. You believe God will answer prayers like that? It's not saying, and by the way, I know because I hear from all of you, and there is, by the way, in this congregation, there is a tremendous diversity of political opinions. And if you're not aware of that, if you think everybody thinks like you and is going to vote like you, you have, you need to talk to some other, other brethren. It's not about me getting my way politically. It's not about the person that I think is going to be the best to lead the country getting into office. That's not what I'm praying about. I'm praying that people can have opportunities to know the gospel and that the government will be a protection for those who are Christians so that we can go about in a quiet and dignified way proclaiming the truth to people who need to hear it. Those are the things that we pray for according to this passage. So, are we regularly praying for all? Those are the things we pray about? Second question, look at the text, verses three and four. Do we really desire what God does? This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires what? What does it say in verse four? What does God desire? Our God and Savior desires that all should be saved and that all should come to the truth. Just a couple of observations as you think about this. That should be no surprise because God created everybody. He created Americans. He created Tanzanians. He created Brazilians. He created Chinese people. God has created everybody and he sees our souls and he sees our soul's condition. And the thing that God wants as he looks upon this world is for everybody to be saved. And the question for you and the question for me is, do I want what God wants? Am I praying like I want what God wants? Am I working and speaking as if I want what God wants? You know, sometimes in a time like this, I know people are passionate about politics and I know people have very, very, very strong opinions about what is and what is not right and what is and what is not best for the country. I understand that. You're welcome to your opinion on those matters. We're going to give an account to God for how we vote and whom we vote for and what we support and what we encourage. We're going to have to answer to God, all of us, for those things. But I'll tell you this. There are a lot of people that ought to rethink their messaging. And there are some congregations that ought to rethink their messaging. What do you mean, John? I mean, there are people who when they see somebody coming... That person is all about the Democrat Party. That person is all about the Republican Party. That's all I ever hear from them. That's all they ever talk about. That's all they ever post about on social media. That's what I see in that person. Think about this. You are entitled to your political opinions. But as a child of God, 
are you unnecessarily turning off and rejecting the potential to share the gospel with somebody by the way in which you consistently express your political views? It's a question worth contemplating. Do I really want what God wants? When people come to our services as visitors and they hear the prayers that are being led and they hear the things that we're concerned about, do they hear that as a congregation we are really concerned about what God wants and that's for all to be saved and all people to come to a knowledge of the truth? Is that really where our focus is? Or do they hear people that are wanting to promote political opinions and platforms, some of which harmonize with what the Bible teaches, others which don't necessarily? What do people hear? Do we really desire what God does? Look at the passage, third. Questions for the church to contemplate, to think about, and for you and me in the way that we live and interact with people. Are we emphasizing Christ and his work as the people of God? Look at verses 5 and 6. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. All, all, all is an emphasis of 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 7. You can't get away from that word all. And if I'm going to be a child of God and if you're going to be a servant of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to be concerned about all. You have to. Even the people that don't think like you, especially the people that are from a different culture than you and the people that are from a different nationality than you. Think about it. The New Testament church biblically is to be multicultural. All nations, tribes, tongues, and people. It is to be multinational. It's to be multi-ethnic. That's the way the New Testament church was designed. Jesus Christ tore down the walls of division by his finished work on the cross. And that ought to be something that concerns us as a congregation as well. It has to be. It's biblical. It's right. Notice, as you look at this particular passage, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Why are we so adamant about proclaiming Jesus and his finished work? Number one, because monotheism is the way to access the one true God. There is one God. You see that? There is here an emphasis on the monotheistic nature of God. Any religion or any philosophy that looks to multitudes of gods is by definition false and empty. There's one God. But not only are we monotheistic in what we believe, there's one God, but we also are very exclusive because Jesus is exclusive. There's one mediator. You know, somebody might say, well, Muslims and Jews, those, those religious groups are monotheistic as well. That's true. But they do not believe that there's one mediator between God and men. You see that in the passage? What's Paul doing? He's narrowing down. He's saying there's an exclusive message. There's only one way that men can be saved. It's through belief in the one true God and the mediator, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a sacrifice, a ransom for all. We proclaim, brothers and sisters and friends, an exclusive message. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way in which people are going to find reconciliation, salvation, forgiveness from the one true God.
Are we emphasizing that? Or are we emphasizing something less than that in the way that we preach and the way that we pray as a congregation? What about you and your personal life? Are you emphasizing the things that God desires and are you focused on Christ and his work and the fact that he's the way people are going to be saved if they're going to be saved at all? Do those things come to the forefront in your conversations? This passage is telling us this is how the church works. This is how the church teaches. This is how the church prays. Number four this evening, look at verse seven. Do we really believe the gospel is for all? Notice how Paul describes himself in his own work. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul was a Jew raised by Jews, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He learned the Jewish ways, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish religion thoroughly. So much so that he persecuted the church. And this man who grew up and was so steeped in that culture, after he came to Christ, he spent the rest of his life and the rest of his ministry proclaiming the gospel is for all. Even and especially the people that did not think like him and come from a culture like his and come from a background of knowledge like his, Paul would proclaim the gospel to anyone who would listen. Think about this, brothers and sisters and friends. Regardless of how elections turn out in our country, regardless of what happens politically in our country, we have an obligation based on this passage to do two things, to pray constantly and specifically for those who are in authority that we might live quiet and dignified lives in peace so that people can come to Christ and to preach, to proclaim the gospel is for all. You know what this passage really means? It means that you and I are missionaries. That's what this passage really teaches. You and I, as New Testament Christians, are missionaries. We're missionaries locally. If people in this society, in this culture, are going to find Christ... Where are they going to encounter him if somebody carries his message to the lost? If people in our nation are going to hear about Jesus, where are they going to hear about him from? They need to hear about him from the church, from the people of God. We are missionaries to a culture that is more and more hostile and unchristian. May the people of God keep their focus on what God emphasizes. Let's pray for souls. Let's emphasize people need to come to God. And let's not get so wrapped up in some of the things that we're passionate about that we lose focus on what's really most important. We're going to spend eternity somewhere. Our citizenship is in heaven. And if those things are true then let's pray like that and let's speak like that. Get your songbooks if you'd like to pick up your songbook and open to the song that Brother Tom announced a few moments ago, the song of encouragement. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. Jesus wants you more than anything else to come to him in humble, loving submission.
to put him on in baptism, as we talked about this morning. If you're ready to make that commitment, you want to be baptized into Christ, there's no better time, no better occasion than right now. If you need to respond and ask for prayers, we're willing to pray for you, pray with you. If you'd like to have some studies and learn more about the gospel and the New Testament church, we'd love the opportunity to talk to you about that. Whatever your need, if you'd like to make it known publicly, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.